Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan. Hello, Fried fans, and welcome to Season 3 of Fried the Burnout Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Donovan, and my mission with Fried is to hashtag end burnout culture. On this pod, we end burnout culture by sharing stories of people who have been through it all and lived to tell the tale, sharing expert tips from the best of the best in the burnout and stress management fields, and sharing hashtag straight from Kate episodes full of my own expertise plus actionable steps to help you end your own burnout cycle starting today. If you're feeling burnt out right now and need more personalized guidance, I'm here for you. In every episode, you'll find a link to book a free breakthrough burnout call. You can find it easily by heading to bit.ly forward slash call Kate or finding the link in the show notes. This free call helps us decide if one-on-one coaching is perfect for you. If it is, we'll get started. If it isn't, I might suggest one of my immediately available online courses, my book, The Bounce Back Ability Factor, or some sessions with a colleague who's better suited to exactly what you need right now. Also, if you happen to be in New York City, I'd love to see you as a patient. I'm a licensed acupuncturist with over 13 years of international experience, and right now my office is located in Midtown Manhattan. I focus on, you guessed it, burnout. I help your body build up a natural stress resilience to fight off all those pesky symptoms that come alongside burnout. You can find all the deets on that at katedonovanacupuncture.com. Hello, Fried fans. I am so very excited. I know I tell you that all the time, but that's because I only talk to people that I really want to talk to on this show because I have the benefit of being able to do that. And I'm very, very lucky. And I am very, very excited to talk to Jennifer Cassetta today. She is a speaker, author, and consultant who works with audiences around the country to help empower them through keynotes, self-defense, and success coaching. Equipped with her third-degree back belt in Hapkido, master's degree in nutrition, and NLP certification, Jennifer helps women release their inner warrior and feel strong, safe, and confident from the streets to the boardroom. I just love that sentence. Her popular self-defense program, She Warrior Self-Defense, has been featured on The Today Show, The Doctors, The Real, Rachel Ray, and many more. Jennifer published her first book, Hear Me Roar, How to Defend Your Mind, Body, and Heart Against People Who Suck, (laughs) which made me laugh. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I'm so excited to talk to you and everybody out there. Yay. So we always start the episode with the guest's burnout story, and we let that story guide us. While you tell your story, please take up all the space that you need. Don't concern yourself with how long you're talking. If there's a point that I really need to get into, I will poke my way in and, and get there. But now is space for, for you, your story, and your energy. So take the, take the stage. Thank you, Caitlin, just for giving me that permission. That's so amazing. Um, okay. So in 2000, I started my first martial arts class. I, uh, again, let kind of the universe guide me to the right spot, the right teacher. It happened to be next door to the building that I was actually working at. Um, and I fell in love, the kicking, the punching. I was like, Ooh, this feels really good in my body. I just love it. And about a year into it, I was going to work in New York City, downtown one morning, beautiful sunny Tuesday morning as I remember it. 
And when I got out of the subway at Wall Street, I looked up and realized that chaos is among us. And there was two um, or one that I could see black hole in the World Trade Center with black smoke billowing out of it. And, you know, it just felt like what is going on and all these people pointing and yelling and screaming and running. And I made it to the place that I was working at. At the time, I was a event planner for a beautiful loft downtown, three blocks south of the World Trade Center. And I showed up, got there. The doorman would not let me up in the in the building and said, you kind of have to go home, but the subways aren't working anymore. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? He said, I don't know, but you can use the phone. Went in to call my mom. And seconds later, the first tower fell. I was pushed into a utility closet by all these people that were swarming into the building looking for shelter. I shut down. My, now I know, my amygdala was on fire and lit up and perceived mega danger. I felt like I was going to die and went into complete paralyzation mode. Luckily, a woman in there realized I was in serious distress and grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me and said, what's your name? I was like, Jennifer. She's like, Jennifer, I'm Nancy and you and I, we're going to get out of here today. Like, okay. And we were kicked out of the building by a police officer in there, I guess, looking for, looking out for us. I thought maybe he thought the building was going to fall. And we went, we just, everyone scrambled. Like there was no plan. You just went out into the street. And as you remember, and I'm sure everyone out there listening remembers where they are. And, you know, even if you're watching it on the, on the news, this, it was like almost like snowflakes of ash, just pouring everywhere. And we went from building to building to look for shelter to make a very long story short. Hours later, I made it to the martial arts school that I had been training at the dojo. So for the first time that day, I was able to take a breath, (laughs) get some water, get some hugs, watch the news, figure out what was going on in the world. And it felt safe. I felt like safe for the first time. And that became this metaphor for my life. Six months, more, a year, gosh knows how long, um, where I was probably now, again, looking back, probably had some form of PTSD. I mean, I remember seriously, like um, any fireworks or loud planes, loud noises, anything like that, would I would jump out of my skin, literally. And um, anyway, it became like this metaphor, like all I wanted to do was go to that dojo. I started to feel all these amazing benefits. Physically, my body was getting stronger. Mentally, I started to feel more confident again. Spiritually, I started to feel grounded and not just like hyper, hypersensitive. Um, and I know looking back that that really saved me from gosh knows what else. Obviously, then the story continues to build an entire career out of wanting to share that those benefits, those mental, spiritual, physical benefits with as many people as I could. And the story continues to get me to now where I am speaking about it all over the country. Which is so great. And one of the reasons that your story struck me is because we talk a lot about the internal and external causes of burnout on the show. And 
most people that are going through burnout tend to be in the blame cycle. Like I, I'm burnt out because I'm not strong enough. I'm not this enough, you know, I'm, which the not enoughness leads to burnout in the first place. And now yeah. we're, it, we're adding to the not enoughness by blaming us for being in the burnout. But mm. there is a huge component of burnout that is external. And it's talked about in the corporate setting, but it's not talked about as far as life is concerned. And now you talked about going through 9-11 in the city like, mm-hmm. and then going through what now would likely be diagnosed as PTSD. Right. And yeah. what's interesting about that is the symptoms are really quite similar to burnout. Your amygdala, like you said, it's in, it's enlarged. It's on fire. You're hyper aware, hyper alert all the time. Right. Right. Anything can trigger you when you've been through something like that. Maybe it's noises, but with burnout, it can be somebody looking at you the wrong way. It can be yeah. anything. It can be anything. Yeah. And this idea that learning how to fight taught you how to fight physically and mentally is what really caught me. Like protect yourself physically, but also help that protect you mentally. Because I know as a, as a lifelong athlete, I know that when I'm exercising regularly, I am mentally stronger. And I know that there are things, you know, there are studies that say exercise increases the blood flow to your brain and all, but I, I enjoy knowing how strong I am physically. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in martial arts specifically, right, there's, it's multifaceted. So there's any athlete will relate to the, to the fact where you, your mind and body connects, right? So I, if you can walk with me into the dojo and like that feeling of stepping onto the mat, sinking your feet, your bare feet, almost into this like rubbery mat. And right there, I just knew, right. By the time I tied my belt on and did like, it's like this prepping, to get onto the mat where we do the work. And so you have the physical stuff that you're doing and you're making your body stronger and you're learning these amazing life-saving skills. And then at the end where a lot of sports necessarily don't have this is we have the meditation side. So it truly is this mind, body, spirit training where, you know, going to the gym, going to CrossFit, not say any of that is bad. It's all wonderful, but then you have to kind of have this other training as well. So have a yoga practice or a meditation practice or some kind of mindfulness practice where martial arts, you get it all. And again, not that I was aware of it at the time, but looking back, I can see how holistic the practice was that helped me, you know, move through that seriously stressful time. Yeah. And so as an acupuncturist, Hmm. um, I've been in the world of, of Chinese medicine for a lot of years. Yeah. Got a lot. I've a lot, just a long time. I started school, I think in 2002 or three. So it's been, it's right. been a while. And at the time I was actually living in San Diego. So that was a, <laughs> we're living in the same parts of the world at different times, Right. but I have never heard of Hapkido. Mm-hmm. Yes. Most people haven't actually, it's a Korean style of martial arts, Hap, H-A-P, um, translates to harmonize Ki, K-I, right, is just Korean for chi, ki, prana. Um, And then do is the way. So literally it would stand for the way of harmonizing your life force energy, which 
I just love. And there's a lot of principles in hop keto that are similar to an Aikido, if you're familiar with that or anyone out there listening, which is more um, defensive strategies, basically taking on your opponent's energy, the negative energy, blend, not taking it on, but blending with it and redirecting that energy out, either out into space, right? Or back at the attacker. However, hop keto has has those circular motions and also the, I'm going to kick your ass afterwards. So there's like a very nice balance of the soft and the hard. <laughs> Which I think is also really useful when it comes to the mental aspect of protecting yourself. Right? Oh yeah. So, sometimes you need to be able to absorb somebody's energy a little bit and gift it back to them so that you're not taking it with you. And sometimes you need to throw down a hard boundary Yes. and say, you're not allowed in here. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is exactly what I've been teaching all morning. <laughs> and what I teach in my keynotes and programs now is different ways to set boundaries and um, use your voice in a powerful way to communicate them. And again, soft and hard. There's lots of different techniques because every situation is different and every relationship that you enter is different and every scenario is different. I, it can never be just one way that you do something. So I give people options. Do you find that in the boundary building space, there's a lot of hard, but not a lot of soft? Yes. Uh, well, it depends who you're talking about. People in New Jersey and New York, lots of hard. <laughs> I right? just mean in general, like when you read, when I'm writing a book about boundaries now, so I'm like in it, I'm in it at the moment. So I'm doing lots of research and I'm thinking yeah. about boundaries all the time. And, yeah. and all of the information that I'm reading Mm -hmm. is about putting the boundary up on the outside and, and putting up that harsh barrier. And I'm not reading a lot about the inner boundary that I'm writing about or this sort of ability to like not demonize everybody who's crossed your boundary that didn't even know it was there, you know, kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that's a great reminder and that I wind up sharing as well, which is not everybody knows what your boundaries are and you and to expect that is impossible, right? So sometimes a nice soft boundary, a nice reminder, like, hey, what you just said, it makes me feel like this. Is that what, was that your intention, right? So a softer block kind of can be a redirect of that energy, asking a question, bouncing back a question to the other person, holding their gaze, waiting for an answer, which holds them accountable, um, is an interaction which is soft yet powerful at the same time. And I think those types of interactions are really important. Can we go into the holding their gaze and waiting for their reaction because that holds them accountable? Let's talk about that a little bit more. Sure. Well, a lot of times we'll say things off the cuff. Um, we use sarcasm, which I think is a great tool. I love sarcasm. <laughs> East Coast people, we just like to use sarcasm a lot. But but we we have these like throwaway comments and then kind of change the subject because it feels uncomfortable um, versus having a, a direct, you know, conversation with somebody stating how it something makes you feel or um, or stating a boundary like, please don't do that again or asking a question. Do you think it was appropriate that you fill in the blank, touch me that way, spoke to me in that way, use that tone of voice? hold the gaze again, it's, it, you might feel like you're squirming inside, 
but it is a way to close the circle of the conversation versus again, just kind of making a slide comment or a snide comment and moving on. You really want to get closure and completion around your boundary setting. So it's not a passive aggressive, like throw away. Right, right, exactly. And I think that's common because a lot of people don't have um, comfort in confrontation, which is fine, right? That's normal. Yeah. It's not comfortable to get into a confrontation with somebody or even to set your boundary, but um, the more you can do it and practice, the, the better you get at it. And this is also true when it comes to asking for things. So I have an example from this week that I was talking with someone and they were mentioning an injury that they have. And I said, oh, there are some great Chinese herbal soaks that are really differentiated for if your pain is this type, if your pain is that type, if the injury is this type, if the injury is that type, if we're talking bone versus tendon versus heat versus cold versus, you know, and there's all these wonderful formulas that you can use based on what you said, this would be the best one. I'll send it to you so you can buy it for yourself. Right. And I got an email later that said, oh, I tried. It wasn't working. Thanks for trying anyway. And that was it. Right. Let's, and how did you? I, I just said, well, maybe your son can help you. Mm. Like maybe your child can help. But I, there was likely an ask in there mm. that there was an, a, a hope or an assumption that I would hook into the ask and provide something like, oh, well, can you order this for me and I'll Venmo you? Like, do you, <laughs> you know, like that, but there was no real ask. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, before I burnt out, I would have been writing back, what is it that you need? How can I help? Do you want me to buy it? And I would offer 18 solutions right. to the problem, right? Which we find ourselves doing often because we, often are afraid to make our own asks. So we interpret other people's asks also when it's like, you never really know what people are looking for. And it's not really your job to help another adult make an ask. Mm, like, that's, yeah, that is, so I didn't say anything. I just said, well, yeah, maybe your son can help if, you know, do you, like, I didn't even say, is there something you want from me? Because you are an adult. If you want something from me, ask me for it. Ask. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of us can take a lesson out of that, both on the ask and the receiving part. <laughs> it's hard to do both for some reason as we as we get older. Kids, kids have no problem asking, receiving. They're like, gimme, gimme, gimme. Yeah. When do you think that changes? Pride fam, I tell you in nearly every episode that step one of your burnout recovery is blood work. And I know that a lot of you avoid it because it's a pain and because your doctor has told you that everything is quote unquote fine. And they refuse to test all the things that you think you need. What if I told you that you could test what you want, when you want, from your home with just a couple of drops of blood? Cyfox Health allows you to do just that. You can buy tests as one-offs or join a membership. Either way, you can test and track your results to help you make decisions about your burnout recovery journey. Get 10% off any membership, subscription, or one-time test kit right now. Go to cyfoxhealth.com forward slash fried for your discount.
That's S-I-P-H-O-X health.com forward slash fried. Good question. Um, I think it changes. I'm trying to, I'm trying to go back into my own history. Um, I think once I got, once you like get out of the nest, Mm. it changes and all of a sudden, um, or at least for me, it did. I didn't want to, I never wanted to be a bother or ask people to go out of their way for me. And, and I think it's probably something I still deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, taught to be too independent as a child Mm. to the point where it was pathological. Mm-hmm. And that was not the intention. And I'm not blaming my parents for it. It was just, you know, right. everybody did the best they could with what they had. And I also interpreted it the best that I could as a child. And that's what happened. Right. And that uber independence also leaves me in a place where I won't make those asks mm-hmm. to not bother somebody to be sure that I can do it myself, you know, yes. et cetera, et cetera. I can relate to that for sure. And I, re- and my mother's voice is in my head right now. Make sure you have your own money. Make sure you get your your education. Make sure this, no one can take that away from you. <laughs> right. So you said before we jumped on that you have a couple of burnout stories. So that was like a massive external mm. situation that created like a PTSD burnout situation that you needed healing from. And thankfully, healing from burnout requires a certain level of psychological and physical safety. So your nervous system can be calm. So thankfully you had the dojo, right? Thank you. You had a space for that. So what, what happened after that? Where's the next burnout come into play? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, um, so the first step in my career was then becoming a personal trainer because I just figured, well, I have to make money doing this somehow. And that was the quickest thing I could think of. Went back to school to become a health coach and later on a nutritionist. And in that time, I had a private practice in Manhattan eventually. And I had a really terrible breakup. Mm. Like the kind of breakup, I haven't really shared this publicly much. So that's why I'm like, eh, if you feel not? uncomfortable, we can, you know. Oh, not at all. I'm writing about it in my book. So, okay, fair. This is good practice then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, probably five-ish years after that um, whole 9-11 thing, that 9-11 thing that happened, you know, um, I found out that the person I was dating, and I'm going to keep this super anonymous, the person I was dating forgot to tell me that they were having a child with someone else. (laughs) And I found out. So I found out after the baby was actually born, so needless to say that I, I mean, had all the emotions, the rage, the anger, the betrayal, the hurt, the embarrassment, the humility, um, all of it. And I'm sure for weeks, I mean, again, that amygdala or whatever, right? Everything is firing off all at once. Yeah. And you're going through these intense, intense emotions, like on this crazy roller coaster where I would be so angry one minute and then so heartbroken the next and confused and, and then blaming myself. How did I not see this and all of the things? So what did I do? I tried to numb my feelings, of course. (laughs) Reasonable thing to do. 
course. So I was personal training at the time. So I was on my feet six, seven hours a day, training people, doing the work, teaching classes at the dojo. Um, and then immediately I would meet my friends at a restaurant, drink wine and tequila as much as I could, and then wake up early the next morning to train my first client. And I was going to mass, uh, getting my master's degree in nutrition. Um, you know, and again, trying to be this awesome health coach, helping people to better well-being. And here I am like numbing myself, probably eating junk as well to the point where I would get so tired throughout the day. So I would have these little pockets where I could come home and just nap, but the naps weren't like a nap. They weren't healthy naps. Yeah. I would fall asleep for like two hours and then have to get back, go to the dojo, train my clients. Right. And it was just this vicious cycle. So that went on for a good six months to a year, probably as well. And then what happened? Then I moved to California. <laughs> so okay, I do no. believe very strongly <laughs> in the fact that sometimes you have to replant yourself. You have to be in different soil to become the next version of who you need to be. What was your move to California predicated by this idea that you needed a clean slate or was it a running away? What, what was going on? Great question. So actually I went to visit a friend in California first and in LA here where I actually, you know, 10 minutes down the road from where I am right now. And I was like, Oh my God, it smells like flowers and the ocean is so amazing. And the, I could see the mountains from the beach. Like I just, started to get my energy back. I started to feel like me again and be excited about things again. Um, so I wound up staying, I rented out my apartment for like six weeks. And in those six weeks, I said, okay, I need to devise a plan to save up, you know, go back to New York, wrap everything up, save up enough money and then make the move out here. So I didn't feel like I was running away. So I, it took a whole year to do all that and make the plan and do the things and do it in a responsible way. So I didn't just like up and leave. And it okay. felt really good. It feel, felt solid. And 11 years later, I'm like, it was the best decision I ever made. So when you were going through that decision-making process and then you had to go back to New York and mm -hmm. you knew you were going to have to save money and sort of like get your shit together a little bit in order to make this happen. Yeah. Were you, did you go back to like your same lifestyle or was that the impetus to shift things? Because all of a sudden, like, you're not going to be wanted dropping, you know, a hundred bucks a night on tequila and wine. <laughs> right. Totally. Oh my God. It's so expensive in New York. Right. Um, yes. So it was the impetus at the same time. like, I'm all about balance and I still drink wine and I still enjoy myself. Like there's, you know, it's not like I went completely and cut everything off, but again, I gave myself the space to just feel good again and mm -hmm. had to almost give, give myself permission to move on and to say like, that is in the past and, and stop really beating myself up about it. I think that was the biggest shift was if I want to go and create this whole new life and make this ultimate comeback, um, then I definitely want to make sure I'm doing it in a way that's not like um, I'm punishing or running away or anything like that. Like I just want to, yeah, kind of a fresh, fresh slate. So in order to get through that stage where you're like, okay, I need to stop beating myself up because that's not going to be useful. Like, and that's not the energy that I want to take with me when I go. Right. Was that when you, 
I don't know if this is the right question and it might be the wrong timing, but was that when you started realizing that you could use some of the principles that you had been learning so long at the dojo to protect yourself mentally, not only physically, but also mentally? Oh, absolutely. Again, you know, I'm writing a book and when I was, when I started public speaking about six years ago is really when I started to dig into all of this stuff and realize what it was I was doing and how I was learning and what, how events, each event led to the next. And I think that's a really great practice for everyone, you know, listening and beyond is to take some time to write your stories out because then you do start to realize these these threads throughout your story, you start to realize like, oh yeah, I actually was protecting myself. And so now in my self-defense classes, right? I teach people if people are going to be overstepping your boundaries or a person, place, or thing is sucking your energy dry from you. You have two strategies, essentially create distance and space or communicate what your boundaries are. So, you know, I kind of joke, like, I created 3000 miles of distance and space from that situation. And again, it was the best thing I did. Uh, but it, it was like calculated and, and I took my time and I gave myself whatever I needed, the grace and the space to really do that. So as someone who has um, moved cross country internationally, internationally, again, back to the U S you know, I've, I've done all the, all the moving fun in, you know, from here to Europe and back between countries in Europe, out to California and to Argentina at some point. I mean, I've I've kind of been, I've kind of like done all the moving and for a long time in my development, I thought that I was running and I was judging myself for it. Hmm. And I didn't realize again until after I started public speaking, until the podcast, to the book, the the moments where I really had to dig through my own story to find the lessons within them that I could share with other people. It wasn't until I was getting into that that I was like, oh, that's not really what was happening. <laughs> right. Like that's okay. Like I can break this down for myself now. And yeah, I really like the idea of either create space and distance. Mm-hmm. or reestablish the boundary. Right. Right. I, I always tell people to, to mend the fence, like reestablish the boundary, find the hole in the fence, plug it. Right. And one of the things that in, in your first book that I, I know, you know, your first book that I read was mm-hmm. that you should have eventually compassion mm-hmm. for all people, even the sucky ones. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so when you are, at a position where you're like, okay, well, my decision is to either like create some distance here between my my person, like this person and myself, or to establish a new boundary or reinstate a boundary or whatever it is. My rule for that is people get like three strikes Mm. because when you're reestablishing a new boundary, you're changing the rules of the game. Right. Most of the time. And people, it's confusing and it can be difficult because you change the rules of the game and nobody knew that that was happening. So, you know, people make mistakes, even when they change the rules of NFL every year, the first few games of the season are a mess because the rules changed and everybody has to get used to that. So how do you find compassion for the person who's pushing your boundaries? And when do you draw the line between 
I'm having compassion for this person and I realize they're just making mistakes to this person is not respecting my boundaries. And now the only choice left is distance. Mm, yeah. Is that a clear yeah. question? I mean, yes, okay. it's a great question. Um, and again, I can just, I can only speak from experience that, that I finally got to a place where I knew that any type of relationship with that person was not going to be helpful for me mm. in future relationships, mm -hmm. right? So that's where I started doing other kind of boundary setting, like creating non-negotiables for my future relationship and thinking like, what are the things that I will be looking for that are non-negotiable, right? Um, so again, I don't want to get into to comparisons with particular people, but essentially in that case, it was just like a no, I have to move on. Um, but I've been in other situations and relationships where people have crossed boundaries. And again, like you said, it's just setting up a new agreement. Um, but how do you know to do that? You know, intuition, intuition is another one of my favorite topics. How does it, how does this relationship make you feel? Do you feel good in it? even regardless of the mistake that they made, do you still feel good in it? Or is there a part of you that feels vulnerable, manipulated, weak, afraid even, right? Those are the type of relationships where it's just time to say, like, I'm moving on. Yeah. At least in my opinion, I know it's easier said than done for a lot of people out there. Yeah. For, and for a lot of different reasons. Right. There's financial complications and there's familial complications. And there's, of course, where we are, it's a side note, we understand all the complications. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Disclaimer. Disclaimer, we understand all the complications. These are guidelines. They are not strict rules. Right. And again, I said, for me, that's right. what I know. Like, if the relationship still feels good to me, then I'm going to work on it. And it's worth my time to reestablish the rules. If it doesn't feel good anymore, then it's time to move on. And I've had that with, with friends of mine. And yeah. it's sad because I've had friends that I've known for a really long time. Um, and then a particular thing happens and it's like, can we mend the friendship? Or has just there been too many things like that that have come up and it doesn't feel worth it anymore. And I'm in the boat or I'm in the camp that just says like, at some point, People grow out of each other and that has to be okay. Yeah. And this is something that I think is really hard for us to accept on a societal level. Like this is, yeah. this is a really complicated thing to talk about and to accept. And I, I wish yeah. it wasn't as, as difficult mm. to just be yeah. like, sometimes there was a season for this and the season is over yeah. and that's, Okay. But it can become complicated when you think the season is over and the other person doesn't. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's when distance comes into is, is a really important bit. That's exactly what I was thinking. And, and just so if you're listening, being like distance, well, I can't always physically get away from this person. Well, creating distance can look like not texting them back right away, putting more space in between the communication um, when maybe they were expecting you to to, that you always respond, you know, quickly in that way where it just is gradual over time. That's another strategy. Yeah. And so how do you, 
in that kind of process when you're like, okay, I need to either, I, well, let's start with setting a boundary. I need to reinforce this boundary with this person. It's important enough to me to maintain this relationship for whatever reason. And I need to get this boundary into place. What kind of mental gymnastics do you suggest people do to prep themselves for that? Mm. Again, it goes back to my martial arts training and it's almost like that meant like mental preparation of getting onto the mat, knowing that things are going to be uncomfortable, embracing the suck, right? Mm -hmm. This is going to be a sucky conversation. It's going to be uncomfortable, but in order to have any outcome, any positive outcome for me or for the relationship, like I'm going to have to go walk through the fire. You can't go around it. And, um, you know, that's, that's how I do. That's how I prepare for any kind of sucky thing. I'm like, okay. And if I get knocked down, then I have strategies. And these are the strategies that I teach in my keynote. Again, back to the mat, when you're knocked down, you can either pivot to move out of the way of a dangerous situation. You can roll with the punches, literally rolling and using the momentum to stand back up each time. Or sometimes Things are so um, out of your control or life just throws you one of those curveballs that takes away a relationship or a situation or your house and you, there's no coming back from it. You just have to make an ultimate comeback, meaning you have to recreate the situation entirely. So whether that's recreating your new life, your new singlehood, your your life without this person in it. Um it can look be looked at as like an exciting time of your in your life. You can do a reframe. <laughs> that was she made a funny face at the end of that, but it was really great <laughs> advice. <laughs> right. So when you are talking about this moment, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, and when you when you say it, I can feel it in my body of like barefoot mm. stepping onto the mat, feet sinking in. Mm-hmm. When somebody's prepping for a conversation and what is, what are the tools they can use for that part of the ritual when they're not going to be barefoot stepping onto a mat? Like what's the, in Chinese medicine, we always say that ritual calms the heart. So ritual Mm -hmm. is important. What is the setup? Yeah. Beforehand, so embracing the suck is a, a hugely important thing and something I am totally on board with. But there's a stage, there's a preparation preparation stage that I feel like belongs before that. I got it. Yeah. So setting your state, right? Mm. And again, being intentional about what you what state you want to choose. So is it confidence? right? If you need to set a boundary and you're feeling really nervous or vulnerable, the opposite of that would be feeling confident in it. Um, or is it, um, you're about to enter a conversation that you know, is going to be uncomfortable. Maybe it's openness, Mm. right? So how I teach people to, and I, how I do myself, obviously set a state is to go back, think of a time when you were in that state. So let's pick confidence. Think of a time where you felt like a total rock star, confident, badass, whatever it was. And then look around, see what you're seeing, hear what you're hearing, feel what you're feeling and, and really embody that emotion, that state, 
whatever you want to call it, but really get into your body and, and anchor it there. And I feel like, or I know, you know, right? Confidence is just a state of mind. It's a mental state. So if you can then anchor that feeling in, you can tap into it later on, really any point in time. So I, I walk people through that process so they can remember how it feels and yeah. just recreate that state. It sounds almost like, yeah, right. You can't do that, but it's it. You absolutely can. You can change your state by doing that. And all of a sudden you'll see people, their physiology will change. The, their breathing will change. And I get, try to just ask the right questions to have people really get aware of the changes in their body and everything, their breath. So again, they can recreate that when they're about to step into this uncomfortable um, conversation. I like that. So we have set the stage, set the state, set the, set the state. So we but have I like stage two. Yeah. So we have set the state, embrace the suck. You're going onto the mat. You're going to get rolled around a little bit. It's yeah. going to happen. It's going to what's, happen. What's after that? Uh, can you pivot? Can you okay. roll with punches? Are you going to make an ultimate comeback? You know, just depends on the situation. Yeah. But you have, you have choice and you have strategies to choose from. So the choice and strategies that we talked about just now are for if something sort of doesn't go your way. So you set the state and you embrace the suck and you go in to have the conversation and mm -hmm. then you get the response you wanted. So you're not rolling with the punches. You're not, that's, that's not what's happening. So you, you get what you wanted. And then there's this like emotional buildup. Mm. I feel like maybe, and maybe that's just me, but like you kind of prepped yourself for this whole thing. And then somebody's like, okay, I can do that for you. Right. Then celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I mean, I feel when you were just telling that I put myself in a situation of, um, you know, when I'm pricing a keynote or negotiating my rate or something like that, it's like, I can feel really nervous. And then they say yes. And it's like, okay, awesome. It worked. <laughs> yeah. I would add to that, that, okay, celebrate and also allow yourself a moment to accept the fact that somebody is willing to meet you where you want to be met. Mm -hmm. Just take a minute and absorb that and feel what it feels like, because that's another state that you can set in the future. If mm -hmm. you lock in that feeling, it is not really that uncommon to set a boundary and have somebody say, Oh shit, I didn't realize, sorry, mm -hmm. I'll try right. to do that better. It's not the most uncommon response. I think it is the most common response when you're working with somebody who's not a narcissist, when you approach right. something in a way that doesn't make people defensive immediately, right. like you're not walking onto the mat and throwing punches before the handshake <laughs> even happens, you know, right. like there, there's most of the time when you're going, in my experience, yep. if the person you're working with, like I said, is like not a narcissist and not whatever, People are going to say, oh gosh, I just didn't know. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of what's coming up for me is this whole cancel culture. And I don't know. Right. I'm going to take it in a whole different direction. Yeah, go. But, yeah. But right. People make mistakes. And, and, and like you said, most of the time they're going to realize that they're made of an asshole of themselves. And like, 
want to fix the situation. So this immediate reaction of like canceling people when they do something wrong does not allow for a lot of growth, doesn't allow for healing. Um, so yeah, even yeah. like on a one-on-one yeah. basis and you know, on a macro scale too. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that, which is why when I was going through the first book, you know, and I read compassion for all people, even the sucky ones, mm-hmm. I understand that this can be more difficult on a larger scale. And I'm not saying there, there are some people that are on my list, man, and I'm not having an easy time throwing compassion their way. I'm just going to, they're just going to throw that out there. Gotcha. Not the Dalai Lama today. I'm, I'm not winning at that game, but you know, <laughs> none of us are, but however, the idea to me that people are just toxic and we need to just cut them out, it exists and mm-hmm. it's not the majority of the time. So if you think people are toxic the majority of the time, you might be overinterpreting. like something's going wrong here yeah. in this system because that's not really often the reality of what's happening, I don't believe. So like, let's stop demonizing everybody in your world for crossing boundaries that they likely did not even know existed. Let's give them a chance, give them a chance to step up. So in my own life, in one of my friendships, I I'm the, I'm the helper friend. You know, I'm the one that people call when they're struggling. I don't call anyone when I'm struggling, right? Hi, welcome to burnoutville. Yeah. Yeah. And so At one point when I was learning to not be burnt out anymore, I called one of my friends and I said, you know, we've been talking about your problems for a long, a long time, Mm. like decades. And I can't only talk about your problems anymore. Uh I need to be able to ask you for support. And you know what I heard on the other side? Oh my God, I've been waiting for you to ask me. Right. I didn't give anybody the opportunity to meet me where I was. So when you have the chance to give someone the opportunity to meet you where you need them, and then they accept, Mm -hmm. soak that up. Because a lot of people want to give you what you need. They just don't know how because you don't talk and they can't guess. Right. So they just take up the space by talking about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm seeing signs of recognition in your face. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. As the independent anonymous over here, um, I, I totally get that. And, um, I've had to learn that in my marriage, you know, to ask for help when I need and reach out when I could use some, some help and some support. Yeah. I've said this on the show before. And so my listeners will laugh at this because they already know this story, but it took me nine years. My husband, every time he made coffee for the first decade that we were married, he would ask me if, if I wanted him to make me one. And I would say, no, I'll make it myself. Until (laughs) One day, nine years later, I was like, oh, by the way, yes, you can make my coffee. And I can tell you exactly what my preferences are because I do actually know them. I want you to put in as as much sugar as you think is too much and as much milk as you think is too much. That's exactly the amount that I want because I think coffee should taste like candy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, And he made it. Yeah. And that was that. But he had to ask me for nine years. Wow. That's intense. Right? Like, yeah. I didn't let him make me a coffee. Right. Right. That's mental. And then, you know, life hits you or us, anyone yeah. with 
the big things. Yeah. Like, so for me, when my father passed away very unexpectedly, um, my dad was like the pillar of health example of what everything that, what men should do for their health. My dad did it from meditation to eating clean to all All the things. Um, and had this giant tumor inside him. Nobody knew. Mm. So we lost him very suddenly. And I, I just needed, I needed help yeah. because that was traumatic for me. Um, of course. And then of course I get back home to LA and my cat has to be put down that oh, week. Oh no. Talk about like, it was just like these whammies. Like, again, yeah. I had to roll with the punches, but at the same time I had to kind of recreate this life without my dad and without my cat, but also learn to lean on my husband and my friends around me because man, that was, that was another, when you said in the beginning, the burnout stories, that was, that was a close one. I felt pretty out after that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is the whole point, right? If you prepare yourself with Mm. mental toughness, Mental toughness includes the ability to protect yourself. It also includes the ability to ask for a helping hand. Yeah. And if you prepare yourself for that, then when the big things happen, right, you're not stranded. Yeah. There's a net. You're caught. Mm. You're not caught in a net. <laughs> Some, the net caught you. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. knew what you were saying. Okay. You're supported <laughs> by the yeah. net. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And being able to do that is, um, I mean, it was definitely a challenge in my life. And then of course, as soon as I thought that I was uh, healed from burnout, I ruptured my Achilles tendon and spent four months in bed and had to ask everybody for everything. Oh no. Right. But that's part of, I was at a kickboxing class and I used to be a gymnast. And so after the kickboxing class, I decided to do a round off. Oh my God. And I landed and we just all heard pop. And of course, as an acupuncturist, I know all the orthopedic testing. So I squeezed my gastrox and my foot didn't move, just uh-huh. stayed floppy. And I was like, um, you guys, I, <laughs> I think my Achilles is gone. And they were like, what do you mean gone? And I was like, it's just not there anymore. That's awful. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> but it was another series of lessons for me in the opposite side of boundaries and the ability to ask to reach out. Yeah. Yep. So tell me about the new book that's happening. Okay. So I'm scared even to say the title because you know what? You don't have to just talk us what, what, just tell us what it's about. Just give, give like the, give us some hints. Okay. But just FYI, like the publisher can change a title, right? Yeah, of course. It's my title now, but it might not be in the future. Um, But it's essentially a book on women's empowerment, how to empower oneself. And I use martial arts as a metaphor and I walk people through, you know, I've been talking through some of the book, obviously through this conversation. So um, how to build resilience, getting on the mat, being uncomfortable and strategies to do that. Right. So it's not just um, telling stories, but it's actual strategies that you can use to go through these different levels um, until you reach your black belt in, in badassery. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like yeah. it. And when will that be out? Hopefully within a, the year. Okay. So by the end of 2020. One. 2021. Oh my goodness. <laughs> 
you know, I still have a 2020 hangover. I know, we all do. Um, so by the end of 2021, we should... Hope. That's the hope is the idea. And so hopefully we can Christmas gift ourselves and our friends. That's my visual under the trees, under the menorahs, like wherever you keep your gifts, it's going to be there wrapped in a beautiful package. I love that. All right. So if you had one more thing that you, that's been sort of bubbling up and you're like, this other thing just needs to be said before we go. Gosh, I feel like we've covered a lot of bases, but I guess my whatever just came up for me was that when we're headed for burnout, if we remain in our heads, you're, you're going to spiral into the burnout and the connecting of the mind, body, and spirit is the only way out. Um, everything that I teach, every program I've created, even the, from the self-defense to a nutrition program must be holistic in that way. It must include strategies for your mind, body, and your spirit, um, or else we're just going to spiral into Headville and that's never good. And we all know what it feels like to spiral into Headville. Thank you so much for that. I've loved this. I would love to have a million more conversations with you. Maybe when the book is closer to being finished, we can chat again. Um, I'm just so grateful for your time and your knowledge and your willingness to share the stories that may have not been heard before yet. So thank you for that. You're so welcome. All right, fried fans, that wraps up another episode of Fried the Burnout Podcast. We love you and we love your reviews and your subscribes and your listens and your shares and your comments on the Instagrams and the Twitters and all the places. So we will see you there and meet you here next time. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more Got each other on our side Plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast With Kate Donovan